Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi there! Welcome to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley, and you are, of course, listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for joining us for this explainer episode, telling you all about what mandates are before we tune in with the On This Day episode on mandates in a few days' time. So, who is Zach Twomley, and what is When Diplomacy Fails? Well, if you're a regular listener, you know the answer to that already. But if you're not, this is the place where history thrives. And you can help make history thrive by remembering BeFit, the best ways to get in contact with, inquire, or support this podcast. It's real simple, guys. Just share everything that you hear about this podcast. Unless, of course, it's bad news, in which case, bury that and never let it escape. No, but seriously, this is a listener-supported show, and we rely on your efforts to put us out there. I don't know if you knew this, Advertising is real expensive. 
Imagine this. It costs something in the region of 60 grand in order to get advertising in, like, subway station. Say, an average subway station in the United States costs upwards of 60 grand. And I don't really have 60 grand. So instead, I'm asking you guys to spread the word. Because word of mouth is free. And word of mouth is how podcasts get big. How did lore become such a big deal? How did I get a TV deal? How does it have advertising in Boston, by the way? I saw ads for lore in Boston. It's because it started out small and people spread the word. So don't be like, uh, there's no real way this is going to take off like lore. It's probably not, but that's okay. I don't really need a TV deal or an advertisement in Boston. All I want is when diplomacy fails to get as big as possible and to get to as many listeners as possible so that a history is spread around the world and so that we can learn from this history, and so that I can feel a bit great knowing that I have all these new history friends out there. Of course, it's not just moral support or pushing out the podcast with free PR. It's also the more practical stuff. I'm talking monetary. I'm talking Patreon. I'm talking you giving a little bit of money each month and in return getting some pretty sweet things back, such as ad-free episodes, the scripts for all the episodes, merchandise, an hour of extra content every month, or the chance to play the delegation game. All of these things and more are, of course, on patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You can find out more about this podcast simply by going to its website, wdfpodcast.com. By the way, you should know the reason why I'm able to afford to have a podcast website, because it ain't cheap, plus a store and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it, is because of your guys' support. Thanks to you guys, I'm able to do this as my job. Not my full-time job, but certainly my part-time job. Speaking of my other job, I'm about to start lecturing in the European Union. And by that I mean I'm about to start lecturing in Ireland about the European Union, just in case you thought I was going to move to Brussels or something. That's not going to happen, but I am going to be very busy over the next little while. So for the next few months or so, if you think I've dropped off the radar, or if I haven't responded to something you sent me, just send it again, and please try and be understanding and I will try and reply. I apologise, but I'm being pulled in several different directions for the next few months, and it's very exciting, and there's some cool announcements to come, but other than that, we are still here, every week, several times a week, releasing an awful lot of content. The way I gauge it is, what does Podcast Addict say about my podcast? And by that I mean, if you look at someone's podcast on Podcast Addict, it will tell you some brief details before you subscribe to it, such as the average length of each episode and how often it's released, that kind of thing. If you do that for When Diplomacy Fails, first it'll tell you you have over 18,000 subscribers, which is pretty cool, but it'll also tell you that When Diplomacy Fails releases an episode every few days. So, yeah, there you go. And the average length is between 30 minutes to 45 minutes. So, these things... They have to be created, and thanks to your guys' support, I'm able to put all the love and attention to detail into this to make sure that they are created. For that, I can't thank you enough, and for that, I present to you this latest episode. Enjoy it, guys, and thanks again for listening.
revolutionary change, which may well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people to keep in their side, and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to leave and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. You're listening to Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 28. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the 28th episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. I nearly forgot where I was there for a second, but don't you worry, we're here. We are here, not live at all, we are here in a pre-recorded secret location in my studio. We're live in the studio apartment, as Colt Cabana would say. Shout out there to my favourite podcast. But yes, this is When Diplomacy Fails. I'm repeating myself just like they repeated themselves over and over again a century ago. Sometimes, when you were trying to make your point in these small council meetings, things didn't exactly go according to plan, so you had to kind of hammer the point home. Where am I going with this? I don't really know. Sometimes I just like to rebel and not read my script. But anyway, the last time we examined arguably the most significant item to emerge from the Treaty of Versailles that being the League of Nations. Today we're going to continue the trend of examining the Paris Peace Conference's most significant contributions to the historical debate by looking at mandates. The League of Nations and mandates are probably the two most important things that the Treaty of Versailles produced, or at least they're the two most unique things. Other things that have to be talked about, such as reparations, I mean reparations have happened before, but there's never been a League of Nations and there have never been mandates before this, so it's quite significant. Anyway, on the 30th of January 1919, mandates would be defined as a concept and, to the best of everyone's ability, agreed to in principle, if not in spirit. But before this was done, the question of what a mandate was and how this new system would work would have to be addressed. And in this episode here, we're going to follow that process, sort of as a background story to the mandates idea. There's an awful lot to unpack here, from the opposition of the Dominions to the idea, to the fears of the French that the League would stick its nose in French business, to the busy work of the British and their determination to get the approval of Woodrow Wilson, to Woodrow Wilson's apparent inability to define concepts which were said to be true to his heart. It is, I promise, a very interesting journey into the era nonetheless. We're going to avoid delving into the mandates themselves here, so we're not going to be talking about what like which countries were mandates at this point. Instead, we're going to examine the groups that campaigned for those mandates to come into being. Our coverage here looks specifically at the 27th and 28th of January, with the 29th of January mainly being filled with Polish affairs, which we'll deal with in a later episode. What contemporaries of the big three thought of mandates, including scholars of the period, 
is almost as important as what the big three themselves thought of mandates because it gives us an idea of how popular or not the idea was and how much potential then lay within it. So you could say we're going to examine the mandate for the mandate, but at the risk of overcomplicating things, it's probably best we just get into this. I will now take you all to the 27th of January, 1919. If the League of Nations did not prove adequate to its task, general chaos and confusion would arise in all parts of the world. Therefore, the League of Nations must succeed, and if all the delegates in this room decided that it must succeed, it would succeed. This was just one of many prophetic statements uttered on the 27th of January 1919. It was on this afternoon a century ago that the time finally came for Woodrow Wilson to address another of the vaguer aspects of his plan for reimagining the world, the system of mandates, which was to replace the imperial system of old. Wilson avoided for the moment an explanation of how the mandate system would operate or be applied in the world, but it was accepted from the beginning that Germany's colonies would not be returned to her. This principle coloured all that followed, for it was discovered that the Allies, and their dominions, all had their own ideas about how these former colonies should now be disposed of. This was done by discussing some examples of mandatory powers, and their role in the New World Order which was being developed. South Africa and its mandate over Germany's South West Africa colony was put forward, as was Japan's vested stake in the Pacific, and her mandate over the South Pacific Ocean's thousands of islands. After a lengthy diatribe by a member of the South African delegation who argued for the union of South West Africa with South Africa, it was time for the Australian Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, to speak up. Australia, you see, had its eyes on Germany's former New Guinea territory, but Hughes argued for annexation rather than ruling the region as a mandatory power. In doing so, he posed the first serious challenge to the mandate's idea, and his point of view is therefore worth detailing. We all desired to do what was right, but what advantage was to be gained by the appointment of a mandatory for New Guinea in preference to handing it over to Australia? This was a question which Billy Hughes asked. Wilson replied that the world didn't want annexations, or that the mandatory system would afford Australia better security, but this fell on the deaf ears of Billy Hughes. The mandatory system could never be as satisfactory for New Guinea as the direct system. It is said that the world favours the mandatory system because it is against annexations, but annexation was only bad when it made for imperialism. Billy Hughes was trying to argue that Australia wasn't engaging in imperialism. She was merely taking and ruling over land which the recent struggles and her noble progress in the realm of democracy distinguished as rightfully hers. Furthermore, Australia was a member of the League of Nations, and, Billy Hughes said, The people of Australia would never tolerate the ill treatment of other peoples. They had fought against militarism for the liberty of the people. The choice between annexation and the mandatory system was a narrow one. There was nothing to be gained by the mandatory system that could not be got by direct government, except that the world was said to dread annexations. But I am positive that no one dreaded the annexation of New Guinea by Australia. The world only dreaded annexation for imperialistic purposes or for the purpose of exploiting other peoples. But Australia was a democracy and responsible for its actions to the people. 
I would readily admit that the mandatory system would be applicable to other parts, but it could never apply to New Guinea. It appeared that Hughes had an answer for everything, much as the South Africans desired to see their writ expand and saw no reason why the process had to be so complicated, when it was only logical that underdeveloped neighbouring territories, once ruled by the enemy, should be swallowed up and absorbed. In fact, it only made sense to go for the most straightforward policy, promising, though the mandate's system was, it did not have to be applied in every case, and in the New Guinea case, Australians' claims were more than justified. Perhaps in a bid to take the attention off his Dominion's Prime Minister, Lloyd George then attempted to set forth something of genuine importance for the Paris Peace Conference, a plan which detailed how exactly the mandate's idea was supposed to work and be applied to the wider world. When doing this, Lloyd George asked some very reasonable questions, in a bid to test exactly how far Wilson's conception of mandates had matured. This was the first time, Lloyd George reminded those present, they had heard an exposition of the principle. An incredible fact when you think about it, because we were several weeks in by this point. He added that its practical application required careful consideration, and I would like to consult my experts and discuss with them the proposals put forward in President Wilson's speech. Money was a major concern of Lloyd George's, as he expressed when running through the new mandates which would be on the market. Developing the lands which had been cleaved from the Ottoman Empire, such as Mesopotamia and Syria, would take vast amounts of money, and the improvement would only be felt after several years. So who was to pay for this? Was the League of Nations going to foot the bill? How would the mandatory powers levy enough funds from their populations to cover the costs of these improvements themselves? How were they to defend the long coastlines of the newer mandates, anyway? Again, it was asked, would the League carry or at least share this burden? Wilson responded by casting a very favourable light over the British Empire. The British colonies had cost her a great amount, but through investment and protection, Britain had carried her burdens to the present, where now her dominions could represent a family of nations. This indeed was how Jan Smuts presented the British Empire when attempting to craft a formula for the League of Nations, and Wilson referred to it here, expressing his firm belief that just as Britain had done this for her dominions, he now wished the League of Nations to create its own family of nations. Of course, it would fall to the mandatory powers to protect their mandates, but if these expenses or responsibilities were too expensive, Wilson opined that the costs would be shared by the League. After this, Lloyd George confessed that he would have to consult his experts and return to the question the next day. Thus, when all reassembled the next morning on the 28th of January 1919, a century ago today, they immediately set into the task of defining how mandates were to be applied, and where they should not be applied. Lloyd George reasoned that he saw no obstacle to understanding between himself and Wilson, but he urged the President to consider the unique position of the Dominions and their relationships to the former German colonies, South Africa with South West Africa, Australia with New Guinea, and New Zealand with Samoa. The New Zealand Premier then spoke at some length on the connection of Samoa to New Zealand, and of the pre-existing examples New Zealanders have set themselves with regard to their treatment of native peoples. Using the Cook Islands as an example, the New Zealand Premier noted that his country had vastly improved the lot of natives in all regions it had come into contact with. It was even noted that a Maori had nearly been brought along as a representative, but that due to space constraints this was not done. 
It was thus inferred, as his Australian and South African counterparts had done, that the record of New Zealand spoke for itself, and there was no need for a mandate to be imposed on German Samoa. Instead, it would make far more sense to institute an annexation of that country properly into New Zealand's economic and political sphere. If New Zealand was unable to do this job, then the League was welcome to intervene, but New Zealand's Premier reasoned that it only made sense to forge ahead with the most natural form of association between New Zealand and Germany's former colonies, much as it did in the other examples from the other dominions. Wilson responded to the New Zealand Premier in the same tone as he had when speaking with Australia's. In other words, by saying that the United States had a vested interest in seeing former colonies treated fairly and that the League was a firm guarantor of such a new age. In addition, Wilson remarked that in Samoa, the American flag also flew and New Zealand would therefore be a neighbour to the American jurisdiction. What reason would New Zealand have for worrying about her security or her rights with America, her historic friend, so nearby? In short, Wilson's response was a mixture between reassurance that New Zealand would get what it wanted and a reiteration of his point that New Zealand would not assume the role Germany had fulfilled in Samoa as its imperial master. With the United States as her neighbour indeed, there would be even less tolerance than before for the imperialistic behaviour espoused by Berlin than there had been before 1914. At this weighted moment, Clemenceau declared the discussion at an end because it was time to focus on the dispute between China and Japan over the Shantung province, which Japan was presently occupying. The Chinese position in the Paris Peace Conference was at once full of potential and also immensely disappointing for its delegates. Lumped into the camp of the small powers with only two delegates, the Chinese wasted no time in expressing the fact that whereas the Dominions represented only a few millions, these Chinese delegates represented some 400 million, one quarter of the human race, as they put it. The Chinese declared their thanks to the Japanese and British for destroying the German menace, but added that we would be false to our duty, to China and to the world, if we did not object to paying these debts of gratitude by selling the birthright of our countrymen and thereby sowing the seeds of discord for the future. To this, the Japanese referred to a document which had been published the day before, which justified Japan's current position with respect to the Shantung region. Part of the status quo was based upon treaties which the Chinese had signed long ago. The Chinese repudiated this point and those treaties, and noted that the war had changed everything, and that besides, those treaties had been signed and regarded back then as temporary and open to revision anyway. Clemenceau then adjourned this meeting for a lunch break, likely compelled to do so by the high temperature and anxiety of the two Asian powers. The afternoon of the 28th of January opened with Clemenceau's presentation of France's colonial interests, specifically with regard to Togoland and Cameroon, and her desire to annex them outright rather than adhere to a mandates system. So, he was basically trying to make the same argument as the Dominions. To make this argument unusually for Clemenceau, he deferred to the French colonial minister, Henri Simon. According to Henri Simon, France was proceeding in this manner for the same reason New Zealand, Australia and South Africa had also acted. In other words, because it made the most sense under the circumstances. Annexation, Simon said, is associated with the image of exploitation and seclusion from the rest of the world, as the imperialist makes the colony his own private domain. Yet, Minister Simon explained, these ideas 
were part of a theory which was today quite obsolete and condemned by all. France had higher aspirations, and the colonies were no longer considered as a kind of closed preserve for the exploitation and benefit of the individual. Higher moral principles now guided the nations. All the great powers worthy of the name consider their colonies as wards, entrusted to them by the world. The work of civilization could only be carried out under the auspices of the sovereignty of a country. The colonial minister added to this that anyone who might fear French intentions or sincerity should recall that France had always held the welfare of these peoples close to heart, and that she had always striven to protect them from harm. Free trade, removing tariffs, the liberally-minded opening up of these territories to foreign investment and trade, and the limitation of harmful produce like alcohol or guns would greatly aid these regions still further. Referring to Woodrow Wilson's fifth point on the fair treatment of colonies and the removal of imperialism from the world, it was further reasoned that France had fulfilled these obligations, and that she had always had the interests of the people of North Africa close to heart, hence the reason why she had stuck around for so long and improved the standards of the region. At this, Henri Simon left the room, and Clemenceau attempted to refer the discussion back to the Dominions and their ambitions for Germany's former colonies. Lloyd George requested instead that rather than specific cases, they look at the principle of mandates and the formula which would then be used when applying it. It had only taken two days, but it seemed that after all the pontificating, the Supreme Council was about to actually try and define such a promising and elusive concept as mandates. What were the responsibilities of a mandatory power? In other words, if these former German colonies or Turk colonies were placed as mandates into the hands of a new power, then that power as a mandatory power would have a certain role to fill. But at no point had it ever been made clear what this role would be. Incredibly, Woodrow Wilson attempted at this point to delay the discussion on the grounds that everyone's opinions were differing on the question and that it would ease the tensions which might exist. Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, disagreed that Britain was in any way opposed to the concept of mandatory powers or to mandates generally. He simply desired that some definitions be made as to what it all meant. Balfour was correct when he said that he knew of no paper or speech in which the practical difficulties no paper or speech in which the practical difficulties which we have to face had been worked out in detail. Balfour also wanted to know additional details, like whether the mandatory power would be appointed for good or on a temporary basis, whether upon another power could assume their position if they weren't doing a good enough job. Unsurprisingly, Wilson demonstrated here his penchant for procrastination and maintaining vague ideas, at the risk of potentially alienating his closer supporters. In spite of Wilson's initial hesitation, the discussion would continue on the matter of mandatory powers for another hour or so. The pressing of the President for more details must have been especially frustrating for the British because several months before, the idea of what a mandatory power would look like had already been debated. From late November to early December 1918, several inter-allied war conferences, the most significant being the Supreme War Council which crafted the armistice terms, and countless British Imperial War Cabinet meetings all attempted to anticipate what would be agreed to at the final peace conference. As we have seen, the Allies' conception of how the peacemaking process would proceed was fundamentally flawed, and was based on the idea that, well, everything would be resolved really quickly. 
Flawed though these expectations were, it was still immensely valuable to take the time to debate and discuss the pertinent questions which lurked in the background of the Paris Peace Conference before it opened. In the final weeks of 1918, the British were particularly active in their Imperial War Cabinets in gathering the relevant voices together and asking them what they imagined would follow the pre-1914 world. It was accepted in these meetings that there had to be a change, but it wasn't quite certain what this change would look like. As we've also seen with the League of Nations idea, people weren't just waiting around for the American president to make a decision or clarify his remarks. A good thing too, because this process took far too long, and Lloyd George's frustration with Wilson's vagueness, as we saw in the last episode, was very real. The empire was too important in any case to allow an American to deliberate on its future, and so the key British personnel determined to take up this role instead. In the last few days of November 1918, during an Imperial War Cabinet meeting, Lloyd George set forth his interpretation of what the mandate system would look like, and what a mandatory power would be expected to do. It was generally agreed that mandatory occupation did not involve anything in the nature of condominium or international administration, but administration by a single power on certain general lines laid down by the League of Nations. These lines would naturally include equality of treatment to all nations in respect of tariffs, concessions, and economic policy generally. Similarly, there would be no militarization or fortification of the territory in question. Finally, there would be a right of appeal from the mandatory power to the League of Nations on the part of everyone who considered himself ill-treated or claimed that the conditions laid down by the League of Nations were not being fulfilled. Subject to such appeal, which might involve the League of Nations withdrawing the mandate in the case of deliberate and persistent violation of its conditions, the mandate would be continuous until such time as the inhabitants of the country themselves were fit for self-government. We might ask then, if the British did have their own ideas about how the system of mandates would work, why were they then so concerned with what Wilson thought? The answer to this question is relatively simple and predictable, that being that Allied unity was essential in the post-war order, as was legitimacy. Unity and legitimacy were two qualities that could best be attained by working alongside the American president. If he didn't see things the British way, then his stubbornness could be overcome gently but it was imperative that he wasn't backed into a corner, but led to that corner in such a way that he felt he had arrived there himself. Manipulation, in other words, was a critical part of this process. Having said that, though, there were those that believed Britain's newfound superiority in the post-war world should not be taken advantage of. When, during another Imperial War Cabinet meeting in early December 1918, Jan Smuts waxed lyrical about the benefits of a British empire stretching up the length of Africa, forming an unbroken chain of imperial red on the map from South Africa to Egypt, he was speaking for a plan which would in time be adopted. Lloyd George merely notes in his memoirs that Lord Balfour, the foreign secretary, suggested that the line of argument pursued by General Smuts was perhaps playing a little fast and loose with the notion of mandatory occupation. Another figure present at this meeting was Edwin Montague, the Secretary for India, who noted with palpable sarcasm that It would be very satisfactory if we could find some convincing argument for not annexing all the territories in the world. 
Still, it is very hard today to view the mandate system as anything other than British Empire or any other empire 2.0. While there may have been well-meaning bureaucrats and officials, and even statesmen present at the Paris Peace Conference who wanted to fight for the rights of these peoples, the majority of the time, these colonies were just recast as mandates, their flaws and shortcomings as human beings being paraded before those civilised folks in Paris, and sympathy twinned with a sense of opportunism, led the way into their countries. To take just one example, we need look no further than Edwin Montague, the sceptic who asked whether Britain should not just rule the world rather than limit its sights merely to Africa. He was speaking sarcastically in that case, but Montague, as Secretary for India, represented India at the Paris Peace Conference, and he introduced several delegations of natives to those assembled in Paris. At no time, though, was it ever imagined that these natives from India should actually represent Indian interests. Thus you had the curious situation where a Cambridge-educated British statesman was said to speak for India, solely because it was his job to do so. Edwin Montague, it was inferred, knew the Indians better than they knew themselves, and in any case was better equipped to speak for them. Sometimes, at certain points during the Paris Peace Conference, The cringe meter reaches new heights, but David Lloyd George was not himself averse to discussing the parceling up of the world with the kind of blithe frankness that reads more like a debate over what you wanted from a restaurant menu than what territory you were trying to take from the map of the world. As Lloyd George wrote regarding a meeting he had had with the Big Three sometime in spring 1919, I asked Colonel House whether America would be prepared to accept a mandatory in respect of the Turkish Empire and I pressed him specifically as to their view for taking a mandate for Armenia and Constantinople. He replied that America was not in the least anxious to take these mandates, but that she felt she could not shirk her share of the burden, and he thought America would be prepared to take mandates for Armenia and Constantinople. He talked of a plan he had for raising money for the improvement of Constantinople at a low rate of interest. He also said in reply to a question that America would be prepared to exercise some sort of general supervision over Anatolia. I then said to Clemenceau, France, I suppose, will undertake Syria. He answered, and Cilicia. I said, this is a question between America and yourselves. But Clemenceau replied, no, it is a question between you and ourselves. I replied, no, we have no interest in Cilicia in the least. We make no claim except to Mosul, which you agreed to give us. He assented to this and said, Any agreement which you make with the Americans, we shall certainly assent to. And I suggested that in order to save time, somebody of a conciliatory mind should discuss this matter with both sides. I said, Have you anybody of that kind? He replied, putting his finger on his own chest, Only myself. To which I said, Colonel House and I were discussing this yesterday and said exactly the same thing that you are the only man it is possible to come to an agreement with in France. I then said that America would accept a mandate for Constantinople, Armenia, and supervision for Anatolia. France would be mandatory for Syria and such parts of Cilicia as would be agreed upon between the Americans and the French. We would take Palestine and Mesopotamia, which includes Mosul. Then something was said about the Italians. I then remarked that if we decided not to remain in the Caucasus, The Italians had shown some indication of a desire to occupy that territory. Neither the French nor the Americans greeted this announcement with any enthusiasm. Colonel House suggested the Georgians could be asked 
or that they would like to have the Italians there? Clemenceau answered, That is an excellent proposal. There was something particularly stark about this extract from Lloyd George's own memoirs, by the way, and whatever new name or flavour which imperialism was couched in, there was no hiding the fact that Britain, France and the United States had a new opportunity to expand their influence in a world shorn of four old empires. This is arguably where the Allied victory in the Great War manifests itself most strikingly in the powerlessness of the Central Powers to contest any claims made now by the Allies to foreign lands, or lands that were once theirs. To the victor go the spoils, as the saying says, but the Allies were determined that the spoils should be theirs, even if these spoils were not cast as spoils, but as responsibilities which their civilization couldn't ignore, or as lands which were in desperate need of cultivation, or improving, which only Western methods could manage, or as people in need of a protector, a mandatory power. Woodrow Wilson went on a lengthy rant on the subject of mandates, without offering much in the way of substance. Wilson's concerns revolved around the potentially bad PR which might result from the impression that the victors were indeed dividing up the spoils between themselves, rather than helping to craft a new world order which had been promised. Georges Clemenceau confessed himself unable to approve of the version of the League of Nations which was now looming into view. It was unrealistic to propose the creation of this all-seeing, all-doing League without equipping it with the teeth necessary to enforce its commands. If it was given executive or legislative power, how would its rulings be enforced? Instead, Clemenceau urged the adoption of a League of Defence which retained much of the League of Nations' missions, but represented a significantly less ambitious version of Wilson's vision. By keeping the peace, Clemenceau insisted, the world would not need to concern itself so much with whatever new laws the League passed. Collective security, even though this term wasn't used now, was what Clemenceau was proposing, and he was also desiring an end to kicking the can down the road, or placing the mandates in the portfolio of the League, where the League's purposes and structure had yet to be fully fleshed out. It was in the end determined that all should break and think hard upon what had been discussed. The next day was filled with discussions of Poland, as the Council of Ten bid farewell to the Polish Commission, which they had created, and which was now en route to the new Polish state. Before these Poles and some Allied delegates left, they spoke at length on their aims, anxieties, and the overall situation in Poland. We will dedicate time to this day of discussions, that is the 29th of January, in another episode. But before we wrap up this episode, it's worth examining the viewpoints of a few historians when it comes to the issue of mandates. The first of these viewpoints is from an article in the American Political Science Review, which was written in July 1919, that is, just a little bit after the Treaty of Versailles and Mandates system was signed into being. It provides an interesting and immensely useful contemporary account of what scholars thought about the mandate system and what it would mean for the future too. The author of this article, Pittman Potter, wrote the following. The present arrangements for the government of the colonial territories taken from Germany and Turkey in the World War, arrangements which may collectively be described as the system of mandates under the League of Nations, may well work well or they may work badly. They may persist into an indefinite future, they may come to an abrupt termination and leave nothing of their own kind in their place, or most probable of all, they may be progressively modified in one way or another 
with the passage of time and the changes of circumstances. But whatever happens hereafter, the present system is now an accomplished fact and will necessarily be taken as the basis for any action in the future. The apparent inclination of at least one great power to insist upon all its rights in former German and Turkish territories, now under mandate to other powers, and the firmness of the latter in defending their position under the mandate system, indicate further that the present system has already created rights, interests and claims on one side and another, which will call for constant consideration and regulation as time goes on. Twenty years later in 1939, when the world seemed on the brink of war once more, Walter Langsam wrote In Quest of Empire, The Problem of Colonies, a short pamphlet published by the Foreign Policy Association and designed to serve as a warning from history to those that still advocated for imperialism. Langsam was particularly biting with his interpretation of the mandate's idea, because to him, it not only appeared like more of the same, it actually followed some of the old guiding principles of the secret treaties which had been set down between 1915-17. to In spite of the high-minded rhetoric, Langsam noted, the Allies and their dominions still managed to gobble up a great deal of what they wanted, and the new acquisitions in people, land and resources were recast as sacred civilising missions, but not everyone was fooled. Langsam wrote, The actual mandate distributions follow closely the lines of certain secret treaties drawn up by the Allied powers during the World War. Hence it seemed to many that they were merely selfish land-grasping acts in disguise. But the mandatories were definitely regarded as stewards for the League and were required to make annual reports on their administration to a League body called the Permanent Mandates Commission. The Mandates System, as this compromise came to be called, was written into the Covenant of the League of Nations, and the Covenant in turn was written into the Treaty of Versailles and into the treaties that the Allies drafted for the lesser enemy states. Thus the mandate system became an integral part of the whole peace settlement. That fact proved critically important. The Treaty of Versailles didn't merely saddle Germany with war guilt and reparations, it also baked concepts like the League of Nations and mandate system into international law. Once the treaty came into effect in January 1920, these concepts also came into effect. In later episodes, we will examine efforts in the United States to separate the Treaty of Versailles from the League in a bid to make it more palatable, but these efforts would be in vain. The complete package and everything that the Treaty of Versailles represented is thus far more significant than traditional narratives may have led us to believe, which probably goes to explain why we're doing a whole project on the thing. It wasn't just an attempt to punish the most infamous member of the Central Powers, it was also an effort to start over with new ideas and a new approach to solving international conflict. Again, we'll look in more detail in the next episode at what the finished version of the mandate system looked like, but it's worthwhile now to defer to the perspective of John Spencer Bassett, who in 1930 wrote a book detailing the history, up to that point, of the League of Nations to mark its 10th anniversary. It was a bit of a cheerful book, it had an uplifting tone, but shortly after it was released, as we know, everything went downhill. On the subject of mandates, which the League was responsible for, owing to the cumbersome agreements previously made, John Spencer Bassett made the following judgment. Since these inhabitants in general were undeveloped people, placing them under the mandate system was looked upon as creating a sacred trust for civilization. The Covenant, in projecting the mandates, explained its purpose by saying, The mandatory powers, insofar as they be appointed trustees by the League of Nations, will derive no benefit from such friendship. 
These words were solemnly repeated by the mandatory powers, but there were many scoffers. The mandates, they said, only concealed, faintly in a pious form, a state of absolute ownership which no one was willing to avow openly. As the mandates were created by the states writing the Treaty of Versailles, so they were assigned by the Allied and Associated Powers to the countries wishing to receive them. Each country would draft the terms on which it assumed a mandate, and when the terms were approved by the Council of the League, the assignment of the mandate was complete. It was only in this third stage of the process that the League appeared in the matter. Its authority continued from that time on, for, once created, the mandate was exercised under League supervision. For this purpose, the Covenant provided for a mandate commission to receive and examine the annual reports of the mandatories and advise the Council on all matters relating to the observance of the mandates. The function of the League, therefore, is to receive the mandates after they are created, and through a mandates commission, to exercise general supervision. Getting to the point where mandates could be imagined and defined accurately would take some time, and in the minds of those that led the Big Five at the Council of Ten, the process had taken far too long already. There was also an abundance of questions and too few answers. The British conceived of the idea in a certain way, and urged their Dominion brethren to accept mandatory status rather than straightforward absorption and annexation. The French feared that the League would stick its nose in French colonial, oh sorry, I mean French mandate business, but Clemenceau was careful to insist that he did not oppose the mandate's idea on principle. Woodrow Wilson was also in possession of an opinion, but unfortunately for his peers he took far too long to produce anything really other than that opinion. While the British and French were animated in their fears, ideas and aims, Wilson urged caution, wanted to have a recess, wanted to refer to the League of Nations, wait until that body had been founded before dealing with what it meant to rule a mandate as a mandatory power. Where once the concept had seemed like a get-into-empire-free card, by the final days of January 1919, it was clear that the process of explaining mandates was looking eerily similar to virtually everything else in need of discussion or debate. The whole thing was taking too long. Within a fortnight, Wilson would have to return to the United States, and before that deadline was reached, it could be certain that the attentions of those assembled would be pulled in different directions, away from the critical process of defining how the post-colonial world would operate. Already it had been shown that not everyone agreed with the mandate's idea. The Dominions wanted to annex their spheres of interest instead, the French wanted the League to keep out, the British wanted everyone to get on with it, but also they wanted a detailed framework of how the machinery was going to work, and they wanted this to be agreed on. And Woodrow Wilson apparently wanted to delay making any specific decisions or detailed pronouncements on the question whatsoever. All of these issues will be repeated on the 30th of January in spades. So, from these two days, from this couple of days just before mandates were presented to the world, a pattern had started to emerge. Perhaps the mistake had been to believe that arriving at a quick decision was possible in the first place. Perhaps this supposedly preliminary conference and its attendees had bitten off more than they can chew, and far, far more than they could swallow or digest. Time would tell, but another test awaited on the 30th of January, when it was hoped all would get to the bottom of what a mandate really was, and what its protector would have to do. The clock continued to tick, and the Cadorce was again filled with men that held the same questions which they had had just a week before. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.